0: This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing.
1: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Putting this year's monsoon and last month's record-breaking amount of rainfall into perspective. Join some dedicated mushroom hunters on an adventure, searching for rare specimens for Mount Lemmon's secretive seasonal crop. And meet the lead actors, the director, and the playwright behind Gloria, a life. It's a celebration of Gloria Steinem that's returning to Tucson for a new run at the Invisible Theater. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. According to climate scientist Dr. Michael A. Crimmins of the UA School of Environmental Science, the wettest southwest monsoon on record was in 1964, with 13.84 inches of precipitation. This year, we are still pretty far away from that total, with 8.26 inches at the time of this recording, but that doesn't mean we aren't seeing some records being broken just the same. Next, Tony Paniagua talks with Dr. Michael A. Crimmins for some perspective.
2: It's obviously a very important time of the year with the monsoon, not only for Arizona, but other surrounding regions. What do you want to say about July? Everybody's talking about how they got much more rain than expected. Did you as a meteorologist expect that to happen?
3: No. In climate, we use a lot of statistics based on historical data and you know, often use the average, which is kind of the middle expected value. And something closer to average for Tucson would have been a little over two inches. And uh, Tucson ended up getting over eight inches in July. So that's three times as much rainfall as we normally see. So that that's really kind of out of bounds for, I think, any what anybody would have expected.
2: Especially since 2020 was a record dry year, was it not?
3: That's right. So it was uh, last uh, monsoon season for Tucson and much of the region, actually, was record dry. And so I think we were a bit worried coming into this, collectively. I think all all of us living in the Southwest were worried, were we going to do a repeat of this uh, record event? And that, that one was so unusually dry. I think it would have been really unusual for it to happen two years in a row. But I didn't really expect it to be this wet on the other side.
2: And what would you like to say about the monsoon in general? And we're talking about, obviously, the North American monsoon, because there's a different variety in Asia, is there not
3: that's right. So on planet Earth, the biggest monsoon system is the East Asian monsoon, which encompasses large parts of Asia. And that has real implications for uh, rainfall there, where you see a 180-degree change in the wind direction across the Indian subcontinent. Here in the southwest, this is a very important seasonal reversal in the wind here, but it's a little more subtle. And it, it encompasses um, much of Mexico and extends up into the southwest primarily Arizona and New Mexico, but can reach into Southern California if it's the moisture is really good and the, the flow pattern is quite right. And will reach up into the mountains, um, the Rocky Mountains up into Colorado and Utah as well.
2: And where is this water coming from? I've seen maps where it shows the Gulf of Mexico water from that area going northwest, and yet I see other maps from the Pacific Ocean going northeast. What's going on? Right.
3: Yeah. So, so the, In Arizona, the predominant moisture source is actually the Gulf of California, which I think is a bit surprising. I think people think it's coming from the Pacific Ocean. It's actually coming from the Gulf of California, which is very, very warm. You It can be 85 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit uh, water temperatures there. That very warm water is releasing lots of moisture into the atmosphere, and it's guided up the Gulf of California into the low deserts of Arizona, and and, and, on soupy moist days, a lot of that moisture in Arizona is coming from the Gulf of California, most of it. But we will see a little bit of upper-level moisture that can flow in from the east from the Gulf of Mexico, and so our best um, situations for precipitation across the southwest are where we can have both of those moisture sources connecting, both the low-level moisture from the Gulf of California and the upper-level moisture from the Gulf of Mexico
2: since we had such a wet July, any idea on what could possibly happen in August or are they not related whatsoever one month versus the other? Because obviously weather is very unpredictable and nature can do what it wants at any given moment. Is that correct?
3: That's kind of the forecast right there. July was fantastic. Um, We're now into August and we're kind of looking week to week uh, on the weather maps. We've had an upswing in precipitation this particular week of August. We're looking out a couple weeks and it looks like the activity will continue. Climatologically, the monsoon starts to retreat in about mid-September. So we're going to start losing the gas for the monsoon season, the high sun angles retreating, the northern hemisphere is cooling off. And so we'll see that activity retreat back into Mexico. But I think that, you know, we, if we're lucky, we could have another couple of a good weeks of precipitation across the southwest.
2: The University of Arizona is holding a contest for people who can guesstimate, I guess you could say, the, the moisture, the amount of moisture that we're going to have each month. Uh, can you tell us about that, please?
3: Yeah, th- this is a, a, a project that um, some colleagues and myself pulled together. We, we did a, a version of it last summer, just kind of an experimental version, and we, we upped our game uh, this year, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, to have a more sophisticated online system that would allow people to create an account and then make a guess for five cities across the Southwest about how much precip they think would fall at those stations each month of the monsoon. So we started in July, we just finished that. Now we're into August and September. It's called um, Monsoon Fantasy. And we've had, uh, I think a little over 300 people participate. So everybody gets to be a forecaster, but nobody saw the eight inch plus July total for Tucson. So that I think kind of blew all of us away and nobody had a line on that high of a total. And so I think we all we all lost and got no points for or very few points for for July for Tucson.
2: Dr. Crimens, I hear a lot of people mention at dinner parties on Facebook elsewhere that this is their favorite time of the year. Is it your favorite time of the year as far as the weather is concerned?
3: Absolutely. I, I'm a weather nerd from from when I was really small, and I, I moved out here. 20 years ago, I grew up in the Midwest and coming out here 20 years ago, I had never seen thunderstorms from top to bottom. You know, there was always trees in the way or there was, it was kind of hazy out. And so just the showiness of the monsoon is what gets me and drills me every year. The thunderstorms, the lightning, the shapes of the clouds, you know, the color of the sunsets. It really is just spectacular. It's a great place to live, but the monsoon just accentuates everything.
2: All right, let's try to put you on the spot here. Any predictions for monsoon 2022, would you care to guess?
3: <laughs> no way. This year I stuck with, um, the. I just thought that the average would occur each month because that's what typically happens most frequently in the historical record, and that was way wrong. So, I mean, that's all you're going to be able to pin me on looking to next summer is just hope. hopefully do something close to average. Um, if we're lucky, we can get above average, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm already excited about next summer, even though I'm living in this one right now.
1: Tony Paniagua talked with Dr. Michael A. Crimmins of the UA School of Environmental Science. You can find a link to the Southwest Monsoon Fantasy Forecast Contest now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. This time of year is special for many reasons. The monsoon not only brings change to the desert, it brings a secret aspect of Mount Lemmon to life. But you have to know where to look.
0: Here we are on the top of Mount Lemmon, and any day that, even if we weren't to find one single mushroom, any time you've spent a day in the woods, you've already won. My name is Julia Bishop Beauty, and I was a reporter for 25 years at the border. And now my major passion is mushrooming. I've joined a group and we hold mushroom growing classes and we have mushroom hunts. We look for mushroom treasure, right? Which is what we're doing here today. What if I open it? It's still brown all the way through.
4: Exactly, it's just incredible. You're out here in the forest and you suddenly seeing bright oranges, bright reds, blues, whites, purples, any color, bright yellow. Um, so it's, it's something really amazing and the fact that it only pops up at a short time of the year and uh, disappears again, it's just a really magical thing to be the person that captured it in that small time that it was there.
5: My name is Niles Bauer and I run the Mushroom Club here in Tucson. We're in Mount Lemon in Tucson, Arizona because this is probably the densest mushroom population after the monsoons of any place in the world, or of any known place in the world. Because we have the monsoons, and because the monsoons are finite and and fairly short, the mushrooms have to emerge during the monsoon or soon afterwards.
4: Hey, my name is Denver, and I'm a mushroom hunter. I just really have a hobby and enjoyment to come out here into the mountains during the rainy season and find all the delicious, medicinal, edible mushrooms that I can. I would say solidly I've been doing it for about four to five years and it started as chance as a, I got a book for Christmas that was a Mushroom ID guide. Um, so it kind of started there but it really the passion was ignited when I came up here to Mount Lemmon and found Ganoderma conch, big beautiful red mushrooms growing on the trees and that just really started a passion for me to come up here and see what else I could find year after year. Anytime you say the word mushroom all you hear people talk oh trippy mushrooms this and that but. It's really a a sad state of affairs because uh, most Americans, most Westerners don't have a relationship with mushrooms. And whereas most other countries do, uh, most any other countries, you know, they really love mushroom hunting. They love gourmet mushrooms. And in America, unfortunately, we only know of two or three varieties really when there's thousands and thousands of varieties that could be being enjoyed. You just gotta get out there and find them, start cultivating them. So over here, you see some uh, nice polypores. Not positive on the idea of them. Probably not hard to figure out what they are. But uh, these are very common up here on Mount Lemmon. You'll find them all over the place from probably 6,500 feet on up.
0: This is the shaggy mane mushroom. It's a choice edible mushroom. And one of the nice things about it is it doesn't have a lot of lookalikes. So when you're going along, you can find it, you can identify it, and you know you found mushroom treasure because it's delicious. Your day has just paid off. I
5: actually don't like eating mushrooms, (laughs) but I'm just fascinated by the legitimate science behind them. My background is in engineering, but I've never pursued that. I always went for my passion, I guess. Mushrooms are essential to a forest. They're essential to any ecosystem itself. And if you look over there, you can see mushrooms going on the side of this dead log. What they're doing is recycling the nutrients from the tree itself back into the system so you can get uptake into living organisms. Plants, animals, the fungi itself gets, gets reused and recycled by fungi. Without that, this whole system would just break down. Everything would just fall apart.
0: I don't think we choose who we fall in love with, right? And I didn't really choose to fall in love with mushrooms. You know, they they appeared, it happened, I fell in love and then, after that, I can identify logical reasons what, like such as, you know, they have incredibly huge medicinal properties or they have chemical warfare between each other and make little chemicals or they support all life on the planet, right? So I can use all these logical reasons, but basically I just fell in love. I could study them for the rest of my life and not learn everything there is to know about mushrooms. They continually surprise and delight me.
1: You can see the video version of that story on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. It was produced for Arizona Illustrated by Tony Paniagua, with the radio adaptation by Maya Hoffman-Long. Last February, an ambitious new staging of the award-winning play Gloria, A Life, opened at the Invisible Theater in Tucson. Later this month, the production makes a return engagement, once again following full COVID safety guidelines. It's both an exploration and celebration of Gloria Steinem, and it was written with her participation. It's designed to inspire audience members to recognize their own ability to make positive change. Afterwards, it invites those in attendance to share their personal stories in a talking circle format. Gloria, A Life was written by Tony-nominated playwright Emily Mann, It may be more correct to say that the play is still being written, as it is regularly updated to include more contemporary events and Steinem's ongoing life story. Emily Mann explains.
6: I didn't decide to write a part of her story. I really wanted to do the whole arc, because the whole idea was that, in a way, it was her stage autobiography. It was in her own words. And the impetus for telling her story was by telling her story, she could say to others, you can do it too, you can be an activist too, you can get past all the obstacles in your life and find a way forward to a meaningful life. And so that meant going back to her very, very troubled childhood. I suppose that the first story came when she was eight years old um, and she was taking care of her very disturbed mother, all alone in a condemned house in East Toledo, and how that shaped and formed her. And she knew that she could not become her
1: mother. Tell us something about your personal experience with Gloria Steinem.
6: I first met Gloria, and I thought she would never remember this, but I've written um, a play that you now know called Having Our Say, and it was on Broadway. And we were in the midst of an evening celebrating extraordinary American women, and she was one. And I went up to her to introduce myself, and she looked at me, and she said, Emily, it's so nice to see you again. We'd met briefly, briefly, like three years earlier. And she said, I want to introduce you to my friend, Anita Hill. And I was flabbergasted, and I met Anita Hill, and we had a great conversation. Um, And the next time was when she called me to say, will you write my life story for the stage? And then we became very close and, you know, in daily contact for about four years.
1: Emily, I'd like to know, as you learned about Gloria's life, as you learned about Gloria herself, and you wrote this play around her, what did you discover were her strengths that allowed her to be who she was in that turbulent time and make advancement on behalf of women around the world?
6: What I think I came to love most about Gloria is that she was terrified of public speaking, and she became one of the most dynamic public speakers I have ever seen. She was a woman who wanted to stay home and write and be invisible, and she became one of the most visible women of her generation. She was a mass of contradiction. And out of that, as she calls it, a sort of mess or stew, came someone who could be vulnerable enough that she could let all women in and all men in and saw a way for people to grow and find themselves in a movement. And for her, the movement was about joining men and women together and people of all sexual identity all gender, to find harmony and equity and hope in a very, very difficult world. And the play itself is about first you hear her story, and then we ask you, the audience, does Gloria's story resonate at all with you, and what is it? And people tell their own stories. And it's one of those great healing live experiences.
1: Actor and musician To Renee Wolf, one of our community's busiest performers, plays an important role as one of the many women who made contributions to the Equal Rights Movement, lawyer and activist Florence Kennedy. Wolf says that it was inspiring to learn about Kennedy's life.
7: She is one of the women who basically taught Gloria how to be Gloria, how to stand up, how to speak in terms of getting over her fear of public speaking, giving her kind of the wind at her back. And one of those people was Florence Kennedy. And I did not know of her. So I've been doing a lot of reading and researching and watching videos of how she spoke and how she carried herself. She had this great sense of style. She wore cowboy hats and lots of jewelry and pink sunglasses and was this force to be reckoned with. So it's been quite the thing to get to know who she was. I knew about Shirley Chisholm, who was the first woman to run for president on the Democratic Party um, for the nomination. But there were other women that just slipped by me that I was not taught about. So to know about someone like Flo Kennedy in retrospect, there's always this kind of like, why didn't I know that? How is it I could have grown up not hearing about her and not knowing about her? And now that I do, she's become a guidepost or this being that I can look to for guidance, even though she's in the ancestral realm.
1: In terms of the larger story that Gloria tells about that era, what did you learn personally? Was there something, Renee that stood out to you that was a new addition to your understanding of that transformative time?
7: We still have so much huge work to do, to live up to the words on paper that describe our country. The whole idea of the American dream, I always say the American dream is wonderful, but it simply has to be dreamed larger. So in this moment, at this nexus point, at this fractious time, to be allowed to work on this play to overcome whatever fears I have about COVID and getting it and then taking all the precautions. And Invisible Theater has gone above and beyond, which is one reason why I feel safe there doing this. I think it's an important story to tell. The real history of who we are and how we connect. I think there's that the idea that we've not been told our real history because our history is, is horrific. But the only way that we can shift and change is by looking it squarely in the face, grappling with it, and then committing to do better.
1: The title role in Gloria, A Life, is performed by Cynthia Jeffrey, an actor with a long history of Tucson stage experience, who now lives in Hawaii. Cynthia Jeffrey begins by describing her earliest memory of knowing who Gloria Steinem was.
8: Well, I am now 60 years old. So when Gloria Steinem was really hitting the headlines, I think, in the 60s and early 70s, I was still a young girl. Uh, I was between the age of, let's say, 10 and 15. So I I remember walking in uh, on the living room and and seeing my mother watching, you know, news programs of various rallies and so forth that was taking place. My earliest memory of Gloria Steinem was, that girl has got style. (laughs) Uh, You know, she caught my attention because she was at a podium, she was speaking to some masses, and and yet she was calm and, and cool and collected, and she looked sharp and modern. That was probably my first impression. As I go back and review many of the videos that I see when she's being interviewed or she's interviewing someone else, like let's say Robert Redford, for example, I find that Gloria Steinem repeats herself quite often. There's certain catchphrases that she uses uh, and has continued to use over the years because they're still as powerful now as they were then.
1: Hopeaholic.
8: Hopeaholic is a big one. You know, that, that's, that's, a diff- that's a big one. And in particular, the show to this, that we're doing now, which centers so much around the importance of the paradigm of a circle rather than a pyramid, uh, linking rather than ranking as being a major aha moment for Gloria Steinem and was a, a, a driving force for her in everything she did. Basically, to, to quote Gloria, she says, if you want people to listen to you, you have to listen to them. If you want, hope people will change how they live, you have to know how they live. And if you want people to see you, you have to sit down with them eye to eye. And it's really how she's lived her life. It's been wonderful for me to, to study her and read these words and play her because I find a lot of parallels in my own life.
1: What are you able to depend on inside yourself as a woman to portray Gloria as a character?
8: The insecurities that Gloria felt in the beginning, being uh, a product of the environment that she grew up in and being unsure of whether it was proper to break out of those norms. It's what I would call normal for anyone who's in their early 20s. You know, we're constantly questioning ourselves. She had to unlearn a lot of what she learned. And uh, there was probably a bit of a rebelliousness that went along with that, uh, much like I experienced in my life. And I think for me, Gloria speaks more to me now as the woman I am at the age of 60 than she would have ever spoken to me when I was, you know, in my 20s or 30s even, or even 40s. I just don't think I'd had enough life experience to be able to relate to her as much as I do now.
1: And finally here is Susan Claussen, managing artistic director of Invisible Theater and producer and director of Gloria a Life. I began by asking Susan Claussen to describe what pandemic life has been like as an arts presenter in Tucson.
9: A roller coaster. <laughs> And I've never been one to like roller coasters. I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, bumper cars I can deal with. Okay. It's been up and down. I, um, like Gloria, I consider myself a hopeaholic. To me, hoping is a sort of planning, and I've always been a planner. And uh, immediately when we were shuttered a year ago, we went about focusing on what we can do and not dwelling on what we can't do. And we came up with protocols. And my staff and wonderful board just thought about how we would feel safe going to the theater again. And it's all about being in the room together. It's 22 people in the audience. Obviously, it's not a sustainable business plan, but number one is safety of our artists and The Truth of the Artistic Endeavor Cannot be Compromised. This play is about the talking circle. It was originally done in the round. We have created that feeling of circle and encouraging people to be engaged to the point that their own story, which is as important as any story being told because it's their story, will always have a forum. I think everyone working on this is a hopeaholic, and it's harder to be optimistic in these days, but there's no other way to be.
1: Invisible Theatre is celebrating its 50th season, and the return engagement of Gloria Alive debuts on Wednesday, August 18th, and runs through Sunday, August 29th. There's a link for the full schedule and details of Invisible Theater's COVID safety procedures on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon, The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.
0: Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.